welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. I'm Peg Mulqueen, and today I'm here on Zoom, of course, with Mark Roberts, Oliver Crossley, and Scott White. Mark is a certified Ashtanga yoga teacher and movement specialist, and Ollie and Scott are both physiotherapists and yoga practitioners who use yoga therapy in their work. The three connected over Instagram over a shared interest in movement and yoga, particularly in the realm outside of dogma. And something that bugged all three of them were these unfounded stories that get continually passed around about yoga and movement. And so they formed the Mythbusters <laughs> in an effort to educate and clarify some of those pesky myths. And thank you guys. Thank you guys for being here and doing this with us. And we are going to debunk, or you guys are going to debunk some of these myths or maybe you're going to tell me their truth. I don't know. You know maybe I think they're myths and you're going to tell me. <laughs> but I thought it was really cute. When I first saw your first post on knees over toes, I thought that was like, I thought that was awesome. And then the second one about language and how we have to be careful about the stories that we pass on. And you used specifically trichinosina causes hip problems. And I've heard that one, you know, totally have heard that mm-hmm. one. So was really, really happy that you guys tackled that as well. So, okay. Are you ready to tackle some myths? Sure am. (laughs) Okay. First up, this is one I hear a lot. and, And particularly when we're talking about twisting postures, keep your hips squared. And by hips, I think they mean pelvis too. So keep hips and pelvis square. Truth or myth? Mark, how about you start? Okay, so before I go into the details of that one, I just want to, like, just get people to start thinking about a few quay, like, why? And then who and what? Okay, so, like whether it be trikonasana, any pose, like any of the instructions that we give, why are we giving those instructions, okay? And who is the person that we're giving them to? And then, you know, what is the the exercise of instruction being done? So for this one, uh, you know, like if the idea, say, the why might be we want to keep the rotation in the thoracic spine, Okay, so then you want to keep the hips square so that there's no compensation pattern happening through the pelvis. Okay, so that might be the why. Uh, But, you know, you have to look at who the person is that you're giving this instruction to. So, like, for example, in Pavrita Trikonasana, if that person doesn't have the hamstring flexibility to reach the floor or the even the arm length to reach the floor, without having to compensate somewhere, then maybe they would have to turn the pelvis to get that rotation. Okay, so that would be the, you know, addressing who is the person you're giving instruction to. So the point is that that one instruction, keep the hips square, might not be suitable for everybody. It might be a great instruction for some people, but it might be a terrible instruction for others. Okay, so that would be my sort of answer to that. And then on term, in terms of like at a functional level, like if you were out on the street or in the forest or something and you had to, you heard a noise behind you and you had to turn to see what where that noise is coming from, 
you wouldn't be thinking keep your hips square. You would just rotate your whole body, right? So that's what we've also got to remember as well. Like when we, it's like these yoga poses are very specific, you know, and they're like, uh, they're just, they're in the sense, I, I might upset some people when I say this, but they're kind of made up. Somebody decided that, okay, let's make this pose and we're going to make these rules and then we stick to them. But, you know, it's just like they're the rules of the game and then you are allowed to break the rules once you understand what those are. So that's, that's my answer. Yeah. I like that. Ollie, okay. you got anything to, anything to add to that? No, Mark, um, in his usual style, has summarized things perfectly, but um, that's his wealth of practice and experience. So, yeah, I think the, the why, what, who, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably pass it on to Scott, who's smarter than me. <laughs> I don't know about that, but thank you for the endorsement, Ollie. <laughs> it's inaccurate. Um, I think... My experience with this coming from an Iyengar background, um, and I know we've all practiced a little bit of Iyengar and dabbled in that world. Um, so with Parabita Trikonasana, for example, the instruction is um, pretty clear and, and the technique is, is really taught quite precisely. And, and I think maybe some of this confusion arises because people have been blending methods a little bit. Um, so the, the emphasis of the why, I think, in that um, style of practice is on a really precise way of getting into the pose and, and holding it for a long period of time, you know, longer than, say, in Ashtanga sometimes. And so I've found that if you keep the pelvis square in Paravita Trikonasana, then like Mark suggested, it emphasizes more hamstring lengthening, particularly the lateral hamstrings. Um, but if you're practicing more of a vinyasa practice, and uh, maybe the emphasis is different there, maybe it's more on the flow of the practice and focusing on the breathing and on your drishti, and, and maybe you already, already have quite long hamstrings, and therefore you don't really need to focus on trying to lengthen the lateral hamstrings. So that why is no longer relevant for that individual. And they, they can get into the pose okay, and their pelvis might be a little bit twisted, that it doesn't really matter for them. And sometimes, again, back to the language thing that you said at the start about the, um, the, our post that we did on language, sometimes the language can get a bit dodgy around these instructions too and it can relate to, well, if you don't square your pelvis, you'll damage something, you'll hurt your hamstring or something. And that, as a blanket rule, it, it is not a good way of communicating because everyone's different and all individuals are going to be approaching with a different body type at a different stage in their life and plus the, the yoga practice that they're doing might emphasize different things and when people are blending different styles together and they go to one workshop here and another workshop here then they get confused and i think that's why these myths are around because there is um, not a consistency with what we call yoga there's so many different schools and different people and in, so, yeah, black and white rules like that always keep the pelvis square become problematic because of the diversity of people and the diversity of styles. That would be my kind of answer there. Yeah, yeah. You brought up a good point. You said something really relevant, and you said the blending of styles. I was realizing that in Iyengar yoga, 
you would put a block under someone's hand. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I didn't have the lens then. Yeah. Yeah. And that would change it. So then keeping a block under someone's hand would take the hamstring uh, element out of it. Right. It would make it more appropriate Mm. for them. But if you don't have a block and you try to keep your hips squared and bring your hand to the floor and bring it flat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that, that that's exactly it. So if your goal is to reach the floor and you don't quite have the hamstring length and you rotate the pelvis, then you will reach the floor. But if your goal is lengthening the hamstrings and you don't quite have the hamstring length, then you keep the pelvis square and you can put the hand on the block and then that's okay. And so I think, yeah, there's, there's sometimes there's just a little bit of misunderstanding there about when to apply these instructions. And I I just remembered a story of when I was teaching like many years ago and, you know, I had this idea of, you know, the hips have to be square and one of my students who was actually uh, older than me, he hadn't been practising as long as me, but he he was, you know, he was senior to me. So, you know, like I respected his opinion and his, you know, like his knowledge of his body and, you know, I tried to adjust him saying keep your hips square because he was like doing that classic thing where the hip was going like right out to the side. Mm. Um, and I was thinking he was doing it incorrectly. But then he just turned to me and said, I'm trying to stretch the outside of my hip, you know, and that <laughs> actually, if you've ever tried that, it actually does do that in that posture. If you let your hip go outside mm. the line of the heel, you get a nice stretch through the outer hip. So I think we're all guilty of that to some degree of like we kind of get locked into these ideas of how the posture should look and then we don't allow for students to have their own, you know, experimentation, looking for their own lines of tension, their own lines of where the stretch feels good. And, you know, I think in 2020 we're finally coming to the understanding that we need to start to listen more to what our students are telling us and not trying mm. to impose our rules and our ideas and dogmas upon everybody. Uh, I, so I think that was a good point, Mark, um, especially when you mentioned the, like, the seniority um, because I think the instructions get passed down often from people who are in a position of um, seniority or they have a certification if it's a stronger or they'll be a certain level um, in the Iyengar system. And I remember my teacher telling me that um, every year, you know, he or uh, another um, teacher that he would work with would go to India and they would spend a couple of months with Iyengar. And this is back in the 80s. And they would come back and they would be like, okay, this is how you do Trikonasana or this is how you do this. (laughs) Then the next year they'd come back and like, no, 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 it's this way. And he was like, what Anger was doing, he was just playing around with it and he was yeah, trying yeah. different things. And, but we get lost in the instruction yeah. thinking that it must be uh, like, like it becomes a dogma rather than a reflection of, well, actually, Anger was just innovating and was being creative and he was playing around with his body. And I think that's what we should take from it. Um, and so there's sometimes it just gets lost in translation, you know? Yeah. That, like, I mean, squared hips are so hot right now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> what is it with that? That's something I find that's interesting in the yoga tradition. I want to like put this back to to all of you, to Peg and Mark and Scott. Is like what I'm finding really interesting is this tension between curiosity, uh, 
variety play perhaps and experimentation and maybe it's the classic tension between conservatism and progressivism, if that's a word, um, but then coming back and more keeping things the same and trying to control it and just do what we know and don't change it. Uh, seems to be merits to both, but I, I've just kind of been confused by the war between them in the yoga world. The paradox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to just add something to that, Ollie. Yeah, I've had, you know, that experience before COVID, you know, for the last workshop I taught because, you know, I attract, I guess, a, a crowd now that sees my Instagram posts or whatever and sees, oh, this guy's really open-minded and he's experimenting, he's trying all these different things. Okay, so then, you know, I'm also attracting a certain element of people who think that they're just going to come to my my soul style class and just do whatever the, the hell they want, right? <laughs> and then I find myself in this kind of conundrum and say, oh, my God, what have I created? I've created a monster. <laughs> and, you know, because I can see that actually the students who do really well in a my soul class are the ones who have learned the traditional method, really know the vinyasa, they've got the good concentration and they really understand the progressive nature of the practice of learning one pose at a time and not just like doing things, you know, willy-nilly. So like it's what you were pointing towards there, Oliver, it's like this, you know, this uh, pressure between those opposing sort of approaches. And, uh, yeah, so that's kind of where, I, you know, the last workshop I realised I need to now try to find a balance between mm. the two in, my, in the way that I'm presenting it and how I want, you know, students to approach it as well. I, li- I like what you said in the very beginning when you said the why. And I think if you ask that question, like, why why do we practice Mysore style or why are we doing it this way? And looking for the experience, the experiential component, it feels like then you can individualize, then you can kind of accommodate the paradox. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think that's wonderful. I think anytime we go too far in one direction or the other, that's always um, one, but one that I can't find the why for and maybe you can help me. (laughs) (laughs) No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. That's one that gets passed around certainly in in yoga, but also a myriad of other disciplines and areas. So, Ali, what do you think? No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Um, The... It's definitely flawed because it's, I mean, like anything with dogma, it gets problematic, but it's a straw. I was just thinking then it's almost like a single blinder straw telescope looking into this big universe that is movement practice, yoga practice and pain because pain can come about as Scott and has helped me understand a lot in the last few years in an individual very differently to another individual. So whereas pain might be, something that someone needs to work through within reason in an asana practice. Um, for someone else, it's very wise and maybe helpful to just not even go near it. So it's about, again, probably understanding the individual and their context, particularly now that we know that pain arises from a variety of 
causal factors, not just physical, structural stimulus response things, but if your social environment and psychological environment is, is, you know, filled with stress and threat and trauma, then you're more likely to experience pain than someone who has the exact same body and the exact same tissues. So looking at understanding the individual would be the primary step there. You guys? Um, I'll just give my own example of how I deal with pain. Um, So like right now I've got this left shoulder thing, which uh, is just been bugging me for a while. So I just have to, like if I'm raising my my arm overhead, it's one of those ones where if I take my arm out to the side, it just hurts. Um, And I know that if I go into that pain, it's not going to get better. So the way I get around it is I try to do the things that I can do uh, without pain. So I'm continue, continuing to do those. And then, as Scott mentioned, this idea of gradual, gradual exposure, graduated exposure, to start exposing my shoulder to the movements that are uncomfortable but with a very light load. So, for example, maybe I'm just using no weight or maybe I'm using like a one-kilogram dumbbell or two-kilogram dumbbell or resistance band or whatever, and just gradually I'm going to get that tissue, the shoulder, so it can feel safe doing that movement again and then gradually try to build it back up. Yeah, I have a similar thing with my right oh, knee, was- patella, I have bit of pain there when I'm when I'm bending it so I just know that like if I do too much like uh squatting type movements uh knees over toes for example uh (laughs) it might feel sensitive the next day so I just monitor that and just see okay yeah it's a little sensitive but then it's recovering pretty quickly so I know that I can maybe push it a little bit more the next time Mark makes a good point there about recovery. That's probably the biggest thing where no pain, no gain can be delineated is is like the person's capacity for feeling that but also noticing it the next day and being receptive to the body. We call it like auto-regulation. So like now when I get on the mat, instead of this Ashtanga rigidity, it's going, oh, well, I did more of this yesterday, so I'll vary the postures today or change the pace or do half a practice or less or it's about kind of just good programming which comes I mean the strength and conditioning world knows so well but in the yoga world we are so smart in so many ways but when we prescribe movement it's kind of a bit all or nothing this whole idea no pain no gain is this idea that you have to feel pain you have to go into it to actually make progress (laughs) what I'm interested in is where it's difficult to scientifically explore some of the more subtle aspects of yoga practice where some narratives and, and uh, processes can be explained in ways that can be very easily hijacked or, or, or ruined. Uh, this, you know, oh, that pain is just the nervous system being cleansed in second series. And so with people like yourself, Mark and Peg, who've had like an extensive Ashtanga practice history, What's your experience of the subtle stuff and pain? Mark, I'm going to let you go. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, well, I just want to first add just like from the FRC, the functional range conditioning system, which, you know, that I've been applying also to my teaching and practice. Um, one of their main things that they say is like pain is the most limiting factor to movement. So one of they have an expression, closing angle pinching. Um, and basically this indicates aberrant joint function. So for this, just imagine like you're doing a neck circle and you're you're rotating towards your left shoulder. So if you are feeling pain as you rotate to the left, that's the side that's uh, shortening and the, the other side is opening, okay? So if you're feeling an opening, like a stretching sensation on the right side, generally they would say that's what you want to feel. But if you're feeling pain or a pinching, we all know that sort of pinching sensation in a joint, in your neck or in your shoulder, you feel that if you're doing a, an arm shoulder rotation and you feel that pinching sensation in the shoulder, then this is indicating aberrant joint function and we don't want to go into that. We don't want to push into that pain. We want to make the circle smaller or move away, do rotations away from this, that pain. So for in the example of the neck, if you are feeling pain going to the left side, then do rotations to the right side or do smaller circles until your body starts to adapt and then you can slowly start to make the circles bigger. So I think that's, you know, from a movement perspective, if you're feeling joint pain on the closing angle, then you don't want to push into that. Mm. Mm. Yep. Okay, and then from this, you know, this the other thing that Ollie brought up, the psychological thing, um, yeah, you know, like over the years I've had all those sorts of things, I've heard all those sorts of things, and, I mean, of course the body-mind connection is real. I totally uh, understand that. But sometimes it can go a little bit too far and there can be a kind of like a shaming that goes on, right? So once I, one time I got a back spasm, kind of put my back out, and then I remember somebody saying, oh, that's because you're feeling unsupported in your life. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> or, you know, someone, someone hurts their knee and then, okay, that's just about ego and control or whatever, you know. So sometimes <laughs> it can go too far with trying to put these, you know, psycho, you know, spiritual meanings to everything. I like the, the way you differentiated the two in the, in the joint and the muscular. I think that's really clear. I think we all know it's sharp pinching that kind of, that kind of pain um, feels like, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, I think what that feels like, and to answer your question, Ollie, about the, the subtle systems, you know, I think that's why we practice, right? I mean, there is, I, you, Mark, you can say what you think, but I think that there is there is some psychological stress for me in second. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. There definitely <laughs> was. And it definitely manifested um, in what I would say felt physical, very, because it was. And I think what it helped me do was to learn to regulate my nervous system by going through it slowly. So instead of going fast again into it, I simply slowed up and to regulate my nervous system. And consequently, it might've taken me a while, you know, it wasn't quick, but it grew my capacity to regulate what maybe we're calling sensation. 
or um, physical manifestation of what I would interpret as it certainly certainly felt pain. I certainly was suffering. How's that? Like I wouldn't have called it pain, but I definitely would not have said that it was enjoyable or felt good. <laughs> that helpful? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Next one. And Ollie, I'm going to actually start with you. Let's talk about practice and everything's possible. Like that's all it takes. That's all anything takes is practice. So no matter what it is, if you just practice enough, you can do it. True or false? Uh, I'm going to lean towards false with a little bit of um, true sprinkled on top. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the nuance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're... Yeah, we're like trying to pin down a politician. <laughs> so no, but yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, for example, I, I see this a little bit. Like I've seen some people particularly who have hip joints that are slightly more introverted or retroverted. So what that means is their legs tend to look like they're more internally rotated versus they're more externally rotated. So you'll see, you know, people who tend to have a bit of a, a duck walk versus toes in a bit. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just how they're built, which is awesome. But that they'll have a bit of a tougher time with some poses than others. I have a bit more tissue around my lower limbs and pelvis. So certain ranges of motion like hip extension are a bit tight. And I've been working it with strength drills and stuff for years and they're only just starting to open up. So it's in most of the time you can train your body to get to do amazing things. But the problem with most people is life's more than just how much hip extension do I have? It's, it's family, it's kids, it's um, community. And so it takes a lot of time to do this stuff. And really it comes down to, um, you know, what's valuable, what's important to you. So uh, mostly false. Yeah. But, um, and it's health, healthy to respect the limitations of the human and, and more important to remember what's important for them. I hope that helps. Yeah, that was pretty helpful. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I think, are you talking about like this, sometimes in the yoga world, there's this kind of message pervade that like, look, I was nothing and then I've reached the top and therefore look at me and if, if I can do it, you can do it. Basically, that's what the message is often portrayed. Um, so I think there's, yeah, it's a limited, yeah, to put it uh, bluntly, genetics plays a role, mm. you know. in If we're, if we're thinking about yoga, if the asana side of things, okay, like, you know, we all know yoga is more than asana and it's, it's much more than that. So let's just put that aside for a moment, just talk about the physical capacity of the human body. Um, then genetics definitely plays a role, um, but then so does hard work as well. So, you know, you do need to apply yourself. There's definitely, I mean, practice is so important. Like it's all about practice as well. That's true. But we shouldn't give like unrealistic expectations. There's, you know, like when it comes to, like I, one often I see is like the jump back, jump through, for example. You know, some people just have it naturally. They just are gifted, you know, either they've got the long limbs or they've got the short legs um, <laughs> or they've got very, they've got kind of like this very cuffer type, this flexi- 
flexible type body, um, you know, just so it's just, I think, of, you know, selling like a, a false hope sometimes to just make people think that everybody's going to be able to do it like the best of them just by practice alone. So, but at the same time, I, I always tell this story, which is like when I, in, I think it was 99 or 2000, I expressed to my yoga teacher that I wanted to learn to teach. And he said to me, well, you don't really have the body type for yoga, so maybe you can, uh, put that one on the back burner and pursue something else. Uh, so but I just put that down to he kind of misread actually my body type. And also he didn't see like the determination that I had that I was going to go into this thing full on and practice and learn as much as I could, you know. So there's, yeah. I think it comes down to like what, and we've been saying for all of these things, there's no one size fits all. And there's like this spectrum of, you know, possibilities when we start thinking about what is possible. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, that was well put, Mark. <laughs> what this has been my observation of what sometimes happens in, in these schools is that you'll get, um, say, so, like Mark said, someone who will say, look, you know, I started from nothing and now look where I am and they, they become certified and they start running their little shala. And that, that myth then, um, you know, just practicing all is coming. You don't even need to do anything outside of the practice. Just focus on the series and, you know, don't skip poses. I didn't skip poses. Rah, rah. Um, so that becomes the, the little mantra. So for some people, that, that mantra may actually be helpful if they do have the genetics and it just by pure accident, they just happen to, that sequence just works. The whole way the series is structured in the Shtanga just works for that person. It's kind of, kind of like a lottery. And thinking that that's a myth might actually be unhelpful for them because then they're like, no, no, like the dogma to a certain extent will can sometimes carry someone um but the problem is the, the lack of generalizability of that and what can happen in these studios sometimes is you have these two cognitive biases that come into play and one would be the survivorship bias and the other would be confirmation bias so if you have a survivorship bias and if you guys are not familiar with that that's you know um this bias that because you experience a certain thing then that, that should be generalizable for everyone else. Um, and then the confirmation bias is that they'll have this narrative running and the students that come along and do really well will stick around. And the students that come and they just get stuck on Rich Ass and D for six months and they never get past, you know, a few poses into the primary series, they get bored, they get frustrated, maybe they hurt themselves. They go away and they never come back and you never remember them. And you're only remembering the people who are doing really well. And so then all the students just have the same body type as the teacher and they all look like carbon copies of each other. And other people are coming in and they get fed that same narrative, that same myth, just practice and always coming in. Maybe that person needs to do some extra stuff outside for the practice. Maybe it needs to be changed. Maybe some poses are just not appropriate for that person. I mean, there's obvious examples. Someone might be pregnant or they might have, they might be an amputee or whatever, you know, like extreme examples like that. Or they might just have a body type that, like Ollie says, is maybe more internally rotated in the hips. And 
they, they really are going to get stuck on certain poses and may take them years to, to get anywhere with, with the practice of they're just doing Surinamaskar A, B and standing poses and then they're just jumping straight into half lotus and that might be a bit of a problem for them. So, um, yeah, like I said, mostly a myth, but then sprinkled on top, there's going to be some people who to whom that, that just seems to work and that's why they've, you know, got, got so um, far in the practice. But that's, it's, it's more by accident than design. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. And I really like that uh, confirmation and survivor bias that really puts, yeah, that, that really puts some context to the way that's passed on. I was thinking about two experiences that I have had definitely in my own life when it comes to this, when it comes to practice. And I thought when I think it was like a few weeks ago, I posted on one of my stories, like, what's the secret to getting your leg behind your head? <laughs> and like, if I'm sitting and I just bend my knee, my knee comes clear up to my shoulder. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, that's a really big, like, that's really helpful in getting your leg back there. But if your knee comes below, I'm saying, look at that. Like, <laughs> even, so I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, having long legs and a short torso really helpful. Like, that's a, and so that's not something. <laughs> Um, and it, and I've, I've worked with people that their knee has come way down and even binding, like we, like down below, like I have one person I know who's like right at the lower level of their rib cage where their knee comes. Yeah. yeah. I, I just like. Get right me. in the sea. It's a nightmare. Oh, God, it's like, and so yeah. you're going to stay there forever. Like, is that, yes, everything is, I, I guess possible. I don't know what's possible. And I don't know what's not possible, but I do know, like, I think what you were saying, Scott, that it's like probably not going, I mean, you know, how many years or Ollie, when you said how many years you want to spend, you know, working on binding and Mari Chasana see in that. But then I also. Richard Freeman, Richard Freeman suggested put like, you know, on the roadside, the witch's hats. <laughs> so you just pop, pop one of those on top of the knee and then you can bind. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. I love that. He's awesome. <laughs> and then I had somebody say to me, though, when I was working in third series, somebody said, your window is closing. You need to finish this now because, and I was getting ready. I was in my late forties at that point. And so that idea that once you turn 50, you can't progress. Yeah. It all goes right. It all goes downhill after that. I'm 54 now. And, but it took a little while for that mindset you guys talked about language for those words the residue it left for years after were tough i've seen i've seen people start the stunga in their 50s and absolutely thrive so and they're kind of a rare case but it's generally because they have a they've got a sort of a proclivity to the practice they have a body type that really responds well to it and they've got that enthusiasm of a 20-year-old and they just they thrive on it. Whereas what, what I've found normally is people who usually approaching 50, they maybe be practicing for up to 20, 30 years or whatever, and that enthusiasm is starting to go into a downhill, right? So that is, I, I kind of feel like that's probably more of an influencing factor. Yeah, Mark, remember like years ago when you came to Townsville, there was a man there and I'm pretty sure he was in his mid-70s when he started, maybe early 70s. Frank. 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 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now he can lift his grandkids over his head and he still does real estate. It's amazing. I think he's 80 there now. Yeah, and he used to love it. Even, but he was not, but he was a classic example of someone like Frank, forgive me for saying this, but he was very stiff. Um, <laughs> but he loved the practice, even though he couldn't really, like, couldn't, you know, he was not excelling in the practice, but he loved the practice as it was. You just by just giving him a few props and bolsters and blocks or whatever, a strap, you know, he was able to modify all the poses and he was thriving in that sense. Like it was giving him so much joy. So I think that is, um, you know, for me, that's kind of like the future of where we need to go with all of this stuff is just accept that we can modify, we can use props, we can add progressions, regressions, all this kind of thing. I love that. And I love not making that whole idea into an achievable sense. You know, like you just, you just talked about the joy and lifting your yeah. over your head. And like, like those are... You know, maybe that didn't seem possible, but like it opened up those realms. But then when we talk about like putting your leg behind your head, like is that, you know, (laughs) I know you guys have brought this up. Where does that fit into life experience or, you know, how does that really help you? Well, you guys have been um, really tricky, slippery and hard to pin down. You would keep opening up the paradox of each and and I love that. And that's why, really, that I invited you here, because, because I sense that, that open-mindedness. And thank you. I know yeah, like, cool. different time zones for us. We're all like in different places in the world. <laughs> that's well, it. Thanks, that's thanks it. for making it happen, Pip. Yeah, yeah thank thanks for having us. Right on. All right. Well, I'll see you guys on Instagram. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to today's episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast. Before you go, I want to share with you an exciting project that's been in the works. Peg and I have created the Ashtanga Dispatch Virtual Yoga Shala, where you can practice with us through live and pre-recorded classes. Ashtanga Dispatch has always been about community. So it's our hope that through our growing of online classes and courses, you will continue to feel cared for and supported because we're here for you and we'd love to have you practice with us. Join me, Megan Powell, September 26th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for an exploration of Second Series and Peg October 9th through 11th at the Down Under School of Yoga for a weekend of lively discussion and interactive practice. Find out more by going to ashtangadispatch.com backslash online dash courses. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast. And stay tuned for the next episode with Mary Taylor and Richard Freeman as we discuss their new book, When Love Comes to Light, bringing modern wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita to modern life. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by Peg Queen and me, Megan Powell. Music by Mark Pilly. Thanks for listening. <laughs>